Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook, and I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural episode of Life After GDPR. This episode follows the successful series that I put together with Jonathan Armstrong of Quarterly Compliance in London of Countdown to GDPR. We had such a positive response and frankly had so much fun doing it that we decided to continue the series after GDPR went live on May 25. So we've renamed the podcast Life After GDPR, but we kept the uh, numbering system since uh, we had nine episodes leading up to GDPR. Today we take up the topic of data transfers since GDPR went live on May 25, 2018. I think you'll find this a very informative episode. There are lots of eccentricities to GDPR which are not typically available under many U.S. laws, certainly under U.S. data privacy and data protection laws. We're going to strive to bring you some of those, try to keep you up to date on current events in the EU and United Kingdom. Uh, And I think that uh, you will enjoy and find very informative our life after GDPR continuation. So without further ado, episode 10, Life After GDPR. Life After GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance, for another episode. Today, we're going to take a look at what has changed with data transfer since May 25, 2018, when GDPR uh, went live. So, Jonathan, thank you for uh, joining me today. My pleasure, Tom. So this, I think, Jonathan, is a topic that is actually going to concern many more people on a practical basis, uh, separate and apart from fines and penalties that we've discussed, other remedies that we've discussed, uh, how encompassing, or excuse me, uh, the new subject uh, access rights or other rights that are available under GDPR, because actual data transfer is, is not just critical, it's mandatory for any international business. And if you're doing business internationally, um, from certainly from the United States, you're going to have something going on in Europe or touching EU citizens. So I think this is a, a topic that a lot of people are very concerned about. So uh, do you have any either initial thoughts or uh, suggestions on what companies might do at this point, Jonathan? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So there are basically four ways of transferring data from the EU to the U.S., Three of them, I think, are more difficult than they used to be. One of them is perhaps easier, and maybe it's helpful if I deal with each of the four of them in turn. It's important to say from the get-go that obviously the definition of personal data is very wide. So it will include things like IP addresses. It will include things like device numbers. So if you're involved in things like online advertising, if you're doing stuff like Google Analytics, then almost certainly you will be transferring data from the EU to the US. And even if the data doesn't move, but you can access it from, let's say, the US or India, then that counts as a data transfer as well. So let's say you've got a system for your employees that does their payroll. That's on a server in Belgium. But one guy from the HR department in the US can get into that server and extract data from it, then that counts as a transfer as well. So the threshold on what is personal data is low, and the threshold on what counts as a transfer is low as well. 
So let's get back to those four methods. Well, the first way in which you can legitimize the transfer of data to uh, the US from the EU is consent. Now, that could work in a um, B2B marketing context, for example, but is going to be incredibly challenging if it's, for example, HR data or data on employees. Why? Because in most cases, you can't get consent from somebody where you can exert undue influence. And there's all sorts of uh, thoughts in GDPR and in case law, etc., that says that an employee, once they're working for you, can't give a valid consent. We're also uh, just about to head into some regulatory complaints on enforced consent as well. And maybe Tom will discuss those in a future podcast when we look at those cases that have been issued post 25 May. So in summary, consent much tougher since May 25th. The second method you can use is what's called standard contractual clauses or model clauses. Not much change there. We're expecting a new edition, if you like, of these standard form contracts. We haven't had it yet. Bear in mind, however, that these uh, standard contractual clauses are the subject of a court challenge. That's heading to the ECJ. It's been referred there from the Irish Data Protection Commissioner asking the Irish courts to look at this as part of the Schrems, uh, Mac Schrems litigation and standard contractual clauses in their current form are likely to face a number of challenges going forward. So I think they're probably less safe post May 25 than they were before. The third method is privacy shield. You'll remember that again through the actions of Max Schrems, safe harbor was struck down. It was replaced by a scheme called privacy shield. Privacy shield is not dead yet, but it's certainly unwell. There are many in Europe who think that the current US administration is not respecting privacy as well as it might. We know, for example, that some in the US administration have criticized GDPR and its effect on US corporations. If the European Commission is minded to retaliate, they could withdraw the Privacy Shield scheme. It too faces challenges in the same court action before the ECJ. That's likely to be heard in about 12 months, 12 to 18 months. And in addition, the European Parliament and the European Data Protection Regulators are not fans of Privacy Shield and the progress that hasn't been made since that was brought into force. So my gut feel would be that Privacy Shield will die. It is a question of when, and that and Privacy Shield certainly in a worse position now than it was on May 25th. So one route start you there. Stop you there, Jonathan. Yeah. For instance, after May 25, after GDPR went live, there appeared in the Financial Times a uh, op-ed piece from the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur, 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 Secretary of Commerce, and in it, he not only criticized uh, GDPR, but he also criticized it as allowing individuals to hide, destroy, or delete information. And is that the type of criticism that you think European regulators would pay any attention to sim- uh, simply because it was Secretary Wilbur Ross's uh, op-ed piece, or is that just considered sort of political fluff? 
No, I, I don't think it is. I think that plays into the hands of those who are trying to criticize the U.S. administration. And I think it was ill-judged, uh, I'd say. Um, there are some, you know, Jan Albrecht being one in the European Parliament who has a principled objection to Privacy Shield. Uh, when I interviewed Matt Schrems, he said the Privacy Shield was, if I remember the quote correctly, uh, safe harbor with flowers on it. He thought it wouldn't survive a court challenge if the U.S. administration keeps dissing uh, European privacy law it might not even get to court because the commission could withdraw um, Privacy Shield prior to it getting to court. So um, I think anybody in the U.S. administration needs to think very carefully about making statements like that. They won't be regarded as political fluff, and they could kill Privacy Shield. So hmm, good to know. All right, point number four. So the fourth one, I, I think, is the one that has is, is a net beneficiary from uh, from GDPR. So there is some good news. There has been an informal system called binding corporate rules in place for some time. How this works is that an organisation can go to any one of the EU regulators, uh, ask it to be its lead regulator put in place a system that's a little bit like Privacy Shield, a series of commitments. All of the entities in the corporate network make those commitments to each other, and then they ask the lead regulator to bless those commitments, and that lead regulator then goes to such other regulators in the EU that you uh, want to deal with and, uh, and gets those binding corporate rules passed. That system becomes easier under um, under GDPR, there is a, a more streamlined mechanism for putting binding corporate rules in place. And in addition, some of those regulators like Portugal that hadn't signed up to BCRs under the informal system would now have to play ball under the new system. So I think we'll see many corporations move towards a binding corporate rule system. It isn't uh, a rubber stamp. It'll take them perhaps about a year, 18 months to get their BCRs approved. Regulators have an ambition to short-circuit that process. I think they will deal with them much more rapidly going forward now that this new body, the European Data Protection Board, EDPB, is in place to help with that coordination task. Um, but BCRs, I think, are the are the new kid on the block that gets uh, statutory footing under GDPR. And, and that's the methodology that I think many people will start to explore, given the issues with the other three. Jonathan, uh, kind of the gr the one sense I've gotten from your description of the four ways to, da uh, to transfer data is that really the situation still has a fair amount of fluidity and that there could be changes, uh, certainly uh, uh making it more difficult or making it easier, perhaps, but that it's something that uh, we're going to have to continue to monitor and uh, let people know about. Uh, would that be a fair assessment? Uh, yes, absolutely it is. And we are likely to see a number of regulatory complaints. We know that some have already been lodged. Uh, and as I've said, we've got this uh, court action, which is 12 to 18 months away, where the ECJ could could knock out at least two of these methods. So yeah, vigilance is the watchword here.
So I've been visiting with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance in London. We've been talking about what has changed with data transfer after GDPR went live on May 25. Jonathan, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life After GDPR. If you have any questions, I would suggest that you contact Jonathan Armstrong. He can be reached at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com. Also, check out the Quarterly Compliance website as they have a wealth of information about GDPR, GDPR compliance. Check out the GDPR Navigator. It's a great one-stop shop for everything you might need in relation to GDPR. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Life After GDPR, and I hope you'll join us again. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about this most unique compliance-related podcast around GDPR. Thanks again. I hope you'll join us again. Life After GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.